keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I need you to be a minister for a moment and find somebody sit, sitting in your general vicinity. Look them dead in the eyes if they owe you $20. And tell them, neighbor, whatever you do, keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. It's hard to keep pushing in the world that we're living in right now. How is one supposed to find serenity and sanity and strength in the world we live in right now? Hey y'all, good morning and welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Many of you know this, but if you don't, I work with folks in a one-on-one setting all through Zoom, individuals, couples, and athletes. If you're interested in finding out more, head over to www.nicobarraza.com to inquire. You can also check out the Navigating Grief and Loss course that's going to be taking place in a couple of weeks here. You can sign up for that. It's 150 bucks. Uh, it's going to be a great course. It's going to take place over two Sundays in October. Everything will be recorded, so if you don't get to make it uh, in the actual live settings, you'll be sent the recordings. You can still go through the the pamphlets and the workshops with uh, with yourself at home and be able to listen in on all the discussions that we have within the course and the presentations. So check that out if you're interested. Um, one last thing, if you want to support the show, please head over to the shop on my website and buy yourself some gear. Buy yourself a coffee, coffee mug, buy some t-shirts for some friends, buy a t-shirt for yourself, for family members. They're really sweet. I rock them all the time. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but I think they're pretty neat. They say starve the ego, feed the soul on them. And uh, I always get questions and people stop and ask me about my shirts all the time, where I've got, where I got them, get them from. And uh, I tell them, hey, it's, it's a little podcast I started over a year ago. Um, and then it always invokes some sort of deep philosophical conversation, which is pretty neat when you're out, out in the wild out there humaning. Um, so again, thank you for being here. So this week we have Jenny Rumansik who created uh, the EQ School. She's spent over 15 years enthralled in personal development via her bio on her website. And she's combined all the resources to help other people become the best and most beloved versions of themselves. I really like Jenny's content. I first came across her profile on Instagram like many of my guests and um, just really loved her down to earth real vibe around self-awareness, around emotional management. She talks a lot about sort of um, emotional management techniques, which I, we get into in in our discussion. And she ho- holds primarily just a lot of group workshops um, with different folks working on these specific things, on how to human in a more healthier way, how to relate to our trauma better, how to understand our behaviors better, how to self-regulate in uh, more desirable ways. So Really appreciate Jenny coming on the show. You can head over uh, to Instagram and find her at the EQ School. Also, the EQSchool.co if you want to check her website out. I'm going to throw links to all of these in the show notes. So be sure to check Jenny out. And um, I'm not going to hold you guys too long. I really want to get to this week's episode. Can't wait and hope to see you next week. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Jenny Romancic, who is the creator, founder, 
of the EQ school. I came across Jenny on Instagram, uh, in, in just the search area on Instagram. Like I do a lot of people that I, that I come into contact with that end up being guests on the podcast. And I absolutely loved her content. Um, very much steeped around self-awareness, which anyone who listens to the show, obviously that's a huge thing that I talk about a lot as well as the guests on the show. And, uh, Jenny, first of all, thank you so much for honoring me with your time, for coming on the show to chat with me. And I just want to say, because people aren't able to see you right now, you are such a like warm human being, like hundred <laughs> percent, like your energy is super just relaxed. And I can tell like you're really doing the good work, which I got to appreciate. Mm. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to talk a bit. Absolutely. So can you, can we start a little bit with you? Tell us a little bit about how did you get to become the EQ school? Like that's, that's not a normal thing for a lot of people to get into, right? So how did you get into that? No, it's been a long time coming too, like a long time in the, in the works kind of within me. Um, I started my career as a high school English teacher. So the teaching piece has always been something I've been interested in and working with people in that capacity. Um, but then I, I ended up going into tech for a while. Um, I ended up working in the nonprofit space for a while, kind of designing workshops. Uh, in, and I moved to Sweden for a year and uh, I went to a design program. And in the design program, it was an interactive art direction program. So I went coming out of tech, wanting to learn more about like the design part of things. And it, it felt a little bit like a bait and switch, but it was like a good bait and switch for me. Because we went in and we did learn a lot about design, but there was also so much within that program that was like, in order to be a good designer, you have to know yourself and like know the lens that you're bringing to each project. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to like work with people who are really different from you. And like embrace conflict because on the other side of conflict will be the best ideas. And so they would bring in mediators every two weeks because we worked in these small groups and we were working on projects with real clients. And these mediators would like poke us until our conflict came up and then they would give us tools to work through it. And so I actually grew more as a human being, like as an adult in that year than I did like in the rest of like my therapy and everything else that I'd done. Mm-hmm. And so I learned all these tools that were so incredibly helpful. And so coming out of that program, first of all, it was really hard to find another regular job because yep. I was like, I want to work like this. Right. This is, this is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And then it was also just like, I felt like I was kind of wandering around for a while after that. Like, I think other people really could benefit from these types of tools mm-hmm. and from this type of structure. Um, so I came out of that program and we moved back to Portland. And I like was teaching uh, workshops in my living room to my friends for a while. And then it just like slowly grew. And then during the pandemic is when I actually started teaching the workshops online and and actually started the EQ, EQ school. So this is relatively new for you then, right? At least at least the brand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The brand itself. I, I had like a few false starts yep. before that yep. um, and would get like kind of scared and, and go back into my hole. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it was the pandemic actually really helped me. That's incredible. So, but you've built up a pretty amazing following already on social media. And has that all happened within the past two years of the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, right? I mean, just. It's like the last six months. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's this thirst. I mean, and correct me if, if, you, if you disagree, like out there right now for or, or even even like a, a reintroduction of like self-development or awareness. Right. And there's these kind of like 
this kind of like this bipolar spectrum. Like there's this, there's this thing that's being sold to people and packaged and doesn't seem super authentic, right? There's a lot of the term mm-hmm. coaching out there. There's a lot of the term, e- even with therapists, even with licensed clinicians, right? There's a lot of people sort of making money off of this. And then there are a handful of people, a lot of people as well too, doing some incredible work. And when mm-hmm. I watch your videos and I read um, the memes that you're writing, I got to say, it's just very authentic and very real. Like when I read your writing, I'm like, this is exactly it. It's it's very simple for most people, right? How do you be more self-aware? How do you communicate? How do you emotionally regulate? The problem is in the application, right? It's like, we know yeah. what to do, but then we get triggered and it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to my seven-year-old self and this is how this is how I'm going to defend myself or this is how I'm going to get heard or this is how I'm going to get my needs met, right? hundred percent. Yeah. And so you talk a lot about like emotional regulation, right. And, and how to, mm-hmm. and how to, and how to do that in a healthy way. Can you break down for a little bit? Why as adult human beings, we are so, it's so commonplace to just be emotionally dysregulated. Like anytime we're experiencing some adverse trauma or altercation, even with a loved one or a stranger on the street. Well, I think that it all comes back to childhood. Me <laughs> I mean, so so much of it comes back to like as a little tiny person, did you have parents who were able to mirror like your feelings back to you and let you know that they exist and to give you like tools for sitting with them and expressing them and moving through them. And the vast majority of majority of us did not have that. And so that's what I think like we look up yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> and that's also part of my story is that like part of the reason that I do this work is because I was not good at this mm-hmm. stuff. I'm st- I still struggle in so many ways, yeah, but it's like, I, I really had to learn for myself, you know? And so everything that I write is like stuff that applies to me as well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like most people are like, you know, kind of little kids walking around in adult bodies who like, when you touch on that nerve, it, it does go back to that wherever, wherever we got had arrested development, mm-hmm. you know, that, that wound comes out. Um, but we have no, most of us have no, like awareness that that's what's happening. 100%. And I like that you bring up that you still struggle with it. Cause even I consider myself a, a pretty aware person, but even being aware, I still struggle with catching the behavior and changing the patterns. Right. Cause that, that's the even harder mm-hmm. part, right? You have to admit you have a problem, become aware. It's like any other addiction, right? It's the thoughts and the patterns mm-hmm. are addictions. We're addicted to sort of being the same that could protect us in the past. And so it's going to protect us now, which is usually not, not true, right? We tell ourselves these internal yeah. narratives and primarily most of the clients I work with, they, they have some sort of mental or emotional block around, well, I can't do X because if I do X, Y is going to happen, right? And they're basing that off of their emotional inheritance, which is the term I use, right? It's been, someone else coined it, but like, it's basically just the emotional history that our caretakers give us since childbirth, but it also is impacted throughout adolescence up until high school, probably even college, right? All these things, any, any in adulthood too, past 22, right? But primarily, I think a lot of the heavy, sort of heavy lifting of the emotional inheritance happens when we're pretty young, right? When we don't really mm-hmm. have a, a ton of uh, coping mechanisms, right? When we're learning from our parents, you know? Um, which is really intriguing because you brought up like you, 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 you see like everyone is like this, this child and, you know, there's an inner child sort of, uh, you know, modality to even cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. And I think mm-hmm. if I, when I look at people and myself even with the lens of like, 
there's a seven or six year old boy in here that sort of needs weren't met, wasn't seen emotionally, was yelled or screamed at, right? These things. If I looked at everyone with that, and, and again, I don't try to assume someone's trauma, but I try to just like give them compassion by saying that they too have experienced trauma or, or neglect or something like that. It's probably different than I have, but it's something like that that I'm not aware of. And so if I can just put myself in those shoes and have some empathy, well, maybe I can have a little bit more space to not get reactive or triggered i i don't always do that well at all right but i Same. certainly make an attempt i can be petty right i certainly make an attempt yeah. you know um so kind of looping this back around to emotional management techniques can you share with us some of the things you you maybe teach in these group courses that seem to really help people like let's say get a grip of their shit Yeah. Well, it's the thing that comes to mind. And the first thing that I teach in every workshop that I teach is even just like the four stages of learning Mm -hmm. and how we learn anything, um, which I'm not sure if you've heard, or it's the four stages of competence, Mm -hmm. the conscious, unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unconscious incompetence, which is like, you don't know that there's a better way to do things. You don't know what the thing is. So an easy, an easy example is like learning how to ride a bike. So we have no idea how to ride a bike. And then we will move into um, conscious incompetence. Now we see other people riding a bike. We see that you can get around on a bike, but we're not ready to try riding a bike yet. Like we see it, we're aware of it. We're maybe kind of like picking up on like, oh, that's what that looks like to do that. But maybe I'm not going to try that yet. And then we move into conscious competence, which is when we actually get on the bike and we start trying to ride the bike. And it's really hard. It's really hard. Our body has no idea what to do. It requires so much focus and energy. There's a lot of fear that has to be overcome. There's like so much that happens within our entire body when we're learning this thing. And then your body gets it. It suddenly you can kind of internalize this motion and you move into conscious, uh, no, unconscious competence. So now you can ride a bike. You can get from A to B without even thinking about it. And so I, I like to start with that because that's also how we are going to move through the phases of learning how to shift our behavior, our emotional reactions, whatever, mm-hmm. that we have to go through all of those stages. Mm-hmm. And that being in the conscious competence phase is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It requires a lot of mental energy. It requires being resourced, like having good sleep, eating good things, like having the the wherewithal to try something different that feels really hard. And it also requires like having compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing that I think that people struggle with in this work is like you have a reaction and you're like damn it i did that again and there's a lot of like oh i'm the worst uh like we go into this place where we shame ourselves which again is usually a message that came from somewhere else Mm -hmm. or that came from society around whatever emotion is coming up for us so i share that because so much of this process is being able to like notice when things happen without judging yourself and being able to know like this is hard it takes time I, I can sit in the conscious incompetence space for a while. I will. I will see a behavior 14 times before I'm actually going to decide, okay, ne- this next time I'm not going to do this mm-hmm. before I actually like can create that space between the reaction and the behavior. Right. And so we try to talk through the process of actually learning and changing is something that like really, it really takes a while. Yep. Um, so hopefully also like we'll have compassion for other people too. You know, when we're giving other people feedback to recognize like sometimes they need to hear something a few times before they're motivate they like gain the motivation to actually change the behavior, you know, in these types of situations. So I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that we start with is like this takes time and space. There's no like magic bullet. Yeah. It's like we have to sit with it. We have to be with ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. I think one of the, the hardest things about that process is when you're in a relationship, 
right? Because it's like, well, does the other person want to wait for you to get to try number 14 or vice versa, you know? And I think that's where like the self-awareness usually has to be worked on before entering because it's hard to sort of get to someone's level in a relationship if they're a lot more self-aware than you and they're consistent, you know, and then there's this, this resentment that builds up, right? And I think a lot of people struggle when they feel like they are doing things differently or at least trying to, but they're not being appreciated for them because the other partner feels like nothing's changing, right? And that's a hard dynamic to be in because it's almost reinforcing the sort of parent-child behavior, like, well, what you're doing is not good enough, right? And mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, do you do you ever advise people, and you might, you might not advise people in this, this area, but I'm curious, like, if someone uh, considers themselves pretty aware and they continuously attract unaware partners, do you think that there is a sort of thing where like, you know, these people just aren't compatible and they need to start searching for more aware partners? Or is it something where the, the aware person can be like, okay, I'm, I'm totally just going to accept this person for who they are. And it's, it's funny because what comes up in that is like availability, like emotional availability right. in a way. Right. And like, usually if you're seeking out emotionally unavailable partners, there's a part of you that isn't unavailable right. that doesn't want to be fully seen or doesn't want to fully connect that deeply. Right. Um, and I think there's probably, I think that that it kind of leads to that more so than just the awareness itself. Um, that there would be a reason there's something, there's something that needs to be looked at mm. in yourself. If that's who you're always bringing to the table. I love that answer. The, the follow up question to that would be, you know, in terms of friendships, I feel like as people grow, one of the things they run into is that they start to reach sort of plateaus in friendships that maybe would once meet them, but don't anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're starting to understand that they're, they're maybe their emotional needs or their intellectual needs are higher, right? Because they're doing this work. Um, one, of, one of the things that comes up a lot with, with either questions that get sent to me on Instagram or, or, or client work is where do I find these people? Right. What do I, yeah, I get that all the time. So, <laughs> I get so much of like, there's there aren't people doing this work out there, right. and I'm like, yes, we are. We're out here. <laughs> I can't tell you how many women DM me and they're like, like, where are all these conscious men at? And I'm like, I think they're probably asking the same question, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's and so I don't really always have an answer for like where do you go. I, I say you know put yourself out there, try to get to places that you know are incongruent with are, are congruent with the person you want to date, whether you're into climbing or yoga or backpacking or these are outdoor things, but anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really hard, right? It's hard. I think the the best the best thing I can tell people is you have to put yourself out there to to meet someone, mm-hmm. right? You have to put yourself out there authentically, vulnerably. But I was just gonna pose the question to you. Is that kind of the same advice you give or are there are there other things you tell people when they're like, you know, maybe feeling lonely because they've done a lot of this work and they can't find other people that are, you know, doing the same thing. I feel like, I mean, even for me, it goes in stages, I think, too, of like, oh, I don't know. I I mean, this year, I feel like I've had a few friendships that like, I'm not at people I'm not as close with. Um, And I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it is just putting yourself out there. We also talk a lot about the like John John Gottman concept of emotional bidding of even just like, you know, if you're at a yoga class being like, oh, like I like your yoga mat, like little bids to people Mm -hmm. to just see, you know, to connect to see um, what's out there. Yeah, Yeah, but I, I think similar, just putting yourself out there is the way to. And doing things that you actually really, yeah, enjoy and care about and are passionate about too. 
Absolutely. It's important. That's, that's a really important statement because I feel like some people put themselves in situations where they're not really interested in what's going on or the thing just so they can meet yeah. a desirable partner. I'm like, well, if you're not into what they're doing, it might not be the best, the best scenario, right? To connect. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because I, when I was in tech, I was a developer for a few years and I remember going to like every single meetup and all these different things and just being exhausted and not really connecting to people. Mm-hmm. And finally one day being like, I'm only going to go to stuff that I actually feel excited about mm-hmm. and which led me out of tech, <laughs> which is funny. But I feel like that's, that is, that's, I think at the core of what we're working toward in self-awareness is figuring out what are those things that light me up? What are the things that like fill my cup that make me feel like me and like pursuing those things in our life trajectory? Mm-hmm. Cause they will lead us to our people. They will lead us to where we need to be. But so many of us are so disconnected from what those things are. We're disconnected from our physical bodies in so many ways. Yeah. So that that in and of itself is is quite the journey for people is figuring out like well what actually does excite me because i'm so used to listening to what other people think that i should do and what makes me a good person quote unquote absolutely and i i actually took me a long time to you're kind of grazing over like somatic work right it's like it took me mm-hmm. a long time to understand where i felt uh, stress or trauma or, or like pain in my physical body, you know, um, even ha- being really emotionally worked up. Like I know I have it in my shoulders, and my neck, but it's really kind of in my upper chest when I get like anxious or when something's not right or when I'm having a conversation that's really uncomfortable, right? And even noticing that helps me sort of identify what's actually bothering me versus what I think is bothering me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to communicate it, hopefully, right? In mm-hmm. in times when we're like really, you know, a lot. so I want to pre- preface this like before we get emotionally triggered it's really important to realize what our triggers are right so we can kind of preemptively prepare for them but when when we are triggered um what are some techniques to actually calm ourselves down our nervous systems down so we we can communicate in a healthier way because i know speaking from experience there has been times in the past when i am so emotionally triggered that i am not hearing listening, speaking properly, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's not, whatever I'm communicating is not, you know, being heard, right? And vice versa, that happens too. So are there some, are there mm-hmm. some techniques you give? Uh, I'm sorry, my dogs are freaking out right now. It's okay. I, I have a dog too. Um, she's upstairs. These, <laughs> these guys are barking for no reason. Um, what are some techniques you give people for, you know, regulating themselves in a time of like emotional crisis, I'd say? I mean, I even think the first and foremost is the pause is even just noticing that it's happening. I think for many people, even that can take some practice to recognize like when you're activated. I mean, how many people are like yelling and they don't realize they're yelling kind of a thing. So number one is like connecting with our body on a regular basis so that we start to become more aware of like when we're tense, what that feels like, what the trigger, you know, what that feels like when it's in our body. So we do exercises around noticing like just noticing, connecting with your physical body throughout the week and noticing like, what does it feel like when I'm feeling energized? What does it feel like when I'm feeling drained? And and the important part of that exercise, more so being that process of just connecting with physically what's there, checking in. Because I think what happens when we get triggered sometimes is that we like disconnect from ourselves. And so to start to become more familiar with what that actually feels like is like number one, before you could do anything about it, you have to figure out what that's like. Um, and then, I mean, I know everyone talks about it, but I think the breath is like number one, so important. Um, 
because there's like a two way street with our breathing, like our breathing impacts like the rest of our body. And then the, the, whenever we're triggered, like we can feel that our breathing changes. So if you start breathing, um, I think it's like, if you continue to breathe deep, slow breaths after, I think it's like, I can't remember. It's a couple minutes. Like your, your nervous system cannot continue to stay in that state. If you're continuing to breathe deeply, continuing to breathe deeply, it will start to calm down. So that's like a number one, but it's one that we hear about all the time, but it's also not one we always utilize um, because it in a way is so accessible, I think. Yeah. And that's, that's always like a, a go-to technique is focusing your breath. But I feel like if you don't practice those breathing techniques before you're triggered, it's probably going to be really hard to tap into those resources, right? Yeah. I mean, and and coming back to the pause too, even sometimes just, just being like, I need a break. Like I'm feeling so activated right now. I need a minute. I think is also an important place to start. But to your point of like, we need to develop the awareness and we have to be able to, we do have to be practicing these things, not just when we're in, um, when we're in, when we're feeling triggered and we're in these spaces, because that's the whole thing about a lot of this work is like, it doesn't work if you only reach for it, like once in a while, we have to like start to develop a practice and a relationship with our bodies so that we can start to like, this is going to going to become a new familiar and a new norm. And it's actually going to be okay. And it's going to help. I can't just reach for it when I've never reached for it before and expect it to do the job. Absolutely. What are some of the most like popular I guess, questions that people ask you when they come in these groups, like what, what, what do people really focus on? You know, what do they want to work on when they're working with you? I mean, I get a lot of people who are just going through big life transitions, um, like divorce or a breakup or, or just like, I've been stuck and I don't know why, you know, there's a lot of just like stuckness, I think that in a, and just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Um, and I will say like, I love therapy. I've been in therapy for a long time. I've had some really great therapists and I've had some therapists who I felt like haven't moved the needle. And I, you know, where we were just like, eh. and I feel like I'll get a lot of people who are like, I've been doing this work for a long time, but I don't feel like I've changed. Like how do like how, how? So I think there's a lot of the how, um, that question that comes up a lot. That, I'm so appreciative. You said that. And that's, so I've been in therapy since I was 23 years old and a lot of the people that come to me, they've been to therapy for a while too. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And they say kind of what you said, like they're not seeing any results, right? And again, I'm not uh, hating on therapy at all because I'm, I'm studying it right now. But I think that there there's some missteps within clinical mental health counseling and modern therapy. And I think one of the things that, uh, depending on your therapist, because there's some incredible therapists out there and there's some incredible coaches, incredible teachers, but depending on the modality, some people go and spend a ton of money and they don't get really any sort of actionable items. They don't get a lot of deliverables like, hey, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Instead, they get like, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Sorry you think that way. You know, let's talk about it. And that's great at holding space for a while. But at some point, it doesn't allow a human to change. It merely enables them mm-hmm. to stay the same, right? And people are really going in there, one, absolutely to, to be, to, for compassionate space to be held, but because they usually want to change something, right? Not everyone. Mm-hmm. Some people go to therapy just to be validated and you pay tons of money just to be validated for your behaviors. I understand that too. But um, for people that do want to change, I feel like they, they kind of run into this roadblock and that's when they start to seek out coaches or other, or other folks or maybe a different therapist. Um, and I think that that just speaks to this like resurgence of, of like self-awareness and self-empowerment that's happening, not, not just in the West, but all over where people are really searching for actionable things they can do to change unhealthy behaviors, 
right? Because if we can change mm-hmm. the stuff inside, usually it changes our world on the outside. That's the that's the most we can affect, right? It's like the things on the inside, you know, and those ripples out. Those ripple out is, is small waves. So I guess the, the question of this that comes to mind is when you started to get on this journey, was there a like dark night of the soul you experienced or some great trauma? Because I know for me, the answer is yes. And for most people, the answer is yes. But I'm curious for you, like, what was that? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, a lot of it comes back to like my childhood and having um, a parent who I think had an undiagnosed personality disorder. And so there was a lot of, for me growing up, like, uh, if you know about like family systems work in, in healthy family systems, like there's usually one master deregulator and everything kind of revolves around that person. And that was very true in my family. So I didn't have a sense of, of what was going on within myself. And I think of like the funny moment when I kind of realized I didn't have a sense of self was when I was like, I don't know, 16 or 17 and realized like, I didn't know if I was a cat person or a dog person, which is kind of a silly thing. But I like really remember that moment and being like, I don't know. And I don't know how to tell that what is going on here. And, and that being kind of the start of like, well, who I am, who am, who am I and what do I care about? Um, but I would also say like, you know, started therapy in college, all kinds of things. For me, it was definitely like a breakup. It was my like bigger, like, like abandonment issues. Everything comes to the circuit surface. It hurts so incredibly bad. Like, and I think that was also the real start of like, something needs to shift here. Like something needs to be different. Like I have not been getting that. And it was, it was that year <laughs> that I found that program in Sweden, which is actually, I learned about that program on a Tinder date, which is funny. Um, go Tinder. That ended up. Yeah, it connected me to like the best experience of my life. Um, And yeah, it was in that program that was not, that's not what I thought I was going to be learning there. Um, But there was so much there about like, who are you? How do you work? How do you show up? What's important to you? How do you bring that to your work? Like to really, truly be creative, like you have to access all of those parts of yourself. So I kind of love that it was like this other way in which I, I was introduced to a lot of this um, this way of, of being in the world. And I love that it was through like a program that was supposed to be teaching us how to be in the professional world. Cause now a lot of people will come to me and be like, but you can't apply this stuff to work. And I'm like, no, you can absolutely, you should be applying this to work. Like who we are at work should not be different than who we are out in the world. Like if professionalism means that you drop your humanity, then that's, that's reject that please. (laughs) Like, then that is not the place for you. Hey man, Jenny, I, you know, how many, work cultures are like, you have to act this way, right? You can't talk about your emotions. You can't talk about your feelings. You can't, you know, and obviously there needs to be boundaries of like someone, you know, dumping emotional trauma onto coworkers, but that's different than like being an authentic human being, right? There's always this like, well, we can't talk about that. This is at work. Right. I love that you bring that up too, because that's the fear for everybody. Um, That's the fear that if we start talking about our feelings, then we're never going to stop. And what I loved is like in our program is that there really was this when, when we had like a high functioning group, there really was this kind of like self-regulating thing that would happen that it's important that people share what's going on. So like, if you were up all night because, you know, your kid was puking and you're exhausted, it is important to share that with your team to manage expectations so they know where you are and so they can support you. And, but also when people come in and then they, they, they don't stop going on and on, like the group felt safe to be like, Hey, if you need to go home, that's awesome. Like we're, we're going to support you in that. And 
we got to keep going. And so it's like when, when it gets to a healthy functioning place, like the, we're able to set boundaries and we're able to hold space. So do you think that's achievable in most work settings? If the leadership is on board yeah. and demonstrates it, yeah. but that's the, that's the key piece. Cause I actually, before I went this route, I wanted to do organizational development. Yeah. I wanted to do, um, culture design right. with teams. Right. And then I was like, mm, no, <laughs> that seems really, it just is, it felt like, um, more inaccessible to me than this does. Yeah. It seems like something that you're rather good at, right? I mean, being able to communicate this to, like groups and organizations, but why, why stay away from the organizational development just because of the bureaucracy of, of leadership and corporations? Yeah, I think so. And it's not like I'm closed off to that forever, but, um, also like, as I've been on my own journey of like embracing my own strengths and like kind of stepping out into the public light, that's been scarier for me. So I think that was a big part of it too, um, is like been developing my own confidence in this space. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there was something I felt resistant to there, mm. and I still do. But I do, I do really struggle with bureaucracy, and I think that was a that's been a huge thing for me. Is it is really important to ask why? It is important to understand why we do things. And when you get like, well, that's just how it is, and that's how so and so wants to do it, so we're going to do it. I'm usually like, well, I'm out then. Right. That that's the struggle I've ran, and you know, I used to. Well, before, when I was an athlete or after I was an athlete, excuse me, I worked in sort of healthcare as a marketing director for, I don't know, a year and a half and didn't last very long in it, but it was, it was the beginning of COVID. And, um, you know, I, I really feel, and, and obviously having worked for, for various companies throughout my life, like that there's just this roadblock in corporate culture because the sort of focus of, of humanity is monetary gain, right? And we, we measure, this thing by this triple bottom line, right? It's like, okay, well, as long as our profits are over and, you know, people are, are decently happy, you know, it's okay. We're going to keep going. And I feel like there's this, this huge misconception of what human capital is like, like, like people actually valuing their work, feeling like they're giving back, feeling like they're valued as a human being, not just as a producer of work. Right. And I think until that changes, it's really hard to have this sort of emotional openness in the workplace, because as you said, leadership kind of, you know, sets the tone for that but even even if leadership is open to it it seems like we have this corporate culture specifically in the west that is really not conducive to being emotionally healthy honestly i mean that's super true but i also do think like we are evolving mm -hmm. you know with with like the emergence of b corporations okay. like things are shifting a little bit you know where like they they value the environment yep. and people and profit mm -hmm. like the they can they can all exist in in one place Absolutely. in one package um i think there is hope and we are moving in that direction and then um i'm not sure probably yeah. there's a a book called reinventing organizations mm. by uh a man named Frederick Laloux who talks about like the, uh, the way humans have evolved themselves in group and working groups over time. And he color codes them. And so like at the beginning, it was like red and red is like how the mafia operated where like someone's in charge and like everyone is always trying to usurp him. So, or her, usually him at that point in time. So like, you can't get very much done really. Like your, your groups stay pretty small. And like, you know, then it moved into, um, like amber organizations, which is like what the church looks like, where it's like 
the organization became bigger and, but people like really identified with their roles. It was hard to move throughout organizations. And then we moved into orange, which is like Nike, which is like a meritocracy where people can move, but we still only focus on money. And it's like moved on and on and on. And so like the highest form of this is now teal organizations and teal organizations are more like living organisms where we try to focus on like where the energy is and like there is hierarchy, but it's more organic hierarchy. Like the person who's really good at something should be in charge of it. And so Patagonia tries to, tries to, to, um, is an example of a modern day company that tries to like exist as a teal organization. So like there are some companies that are doing it and they're trying to do it. But to your point, like overall in general, like I think we're stuck in orange. We're stuck in like make money. And Yvonne just donated half of it or his entire shareholdings, right? With Patagonia. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm hopeful, right? I, I definitely consider myself an optimistic person, although I'm, I'm a realist too, right? And I think that there there are things that are changing. You know, are they changing quick enough? I certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's hard it's hard to know now. But the fact is there are there are things that are changing and that's that's hopeful. But I do think that the more people that get into this work, like the stuff that you're talking about and you're promoting, the stuff that I'm working with, I think it ripples out that way the quickest, right? Because yeah. if people set a standard 100%. within themselves, like I'm not going to work for a corporation that doesn't respect who I am as a human, that doesn't value maternity and paternity leave, that doesn't value the environment, right? That doesn't value paying someone an equitable wage for the work that they're doing, you know? And obviously it's, I, I know I say that from a state of being pri- privileged because, you know, if you have to make ends meet, you have to work to feed your family, to feed yourself, right? I understand that. So I wanted to say that with, with reverence, but I do think that, if we can change ourselves internally, that is going to collectively change things the quickest and with the more sort of progressive longevity versus looking to corporations or to organizations to change before we do. 100%. Totally agree there. And that's where that's where I feel like my activism work, so to speak, is helping people like find calm within themselves mm-hmm. to trust themselves. Because it's something you were saying at the very beginning is like, I think the better we are able to regulate ourselves, the better we're able to recognize our own inner child and our own reactions to things, the more compassion we'll have for other people, the more, the better able, the better able we are to see when it's happening in others and to actually pause and be like, Oh, there's something going on here and it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It gets a little bit easier to put that wedge in and not just react. So yeah, it starts with us. You painted this like family systems picture of one caregiver sort of being the emotional, like um, authoritarian figure of dysregulation, right? For for mm-hmm. people that have that, and it's very common, um, or, or people that have two or multiple, is there, you know, a lot of people, they want to maintain a relationship with their family, right? We have this like nuclear family um, sort of thing in, in in society that, you know, and in culture that's like, you know, you should be close to your family. You should give back, love your family for the things they've given you. And I, and I definitely agree with that. It's, it's a beautiful sentiment, but also there are some people that have really unhealthy family dynamics, right? And for these people, a lot of them don't have a choice, but to create physical separation to actually be healthier or to detach themselves, right? Do you think there are things that we can learn as far as emotional management that allows us to stay in those situations in a more healthy way? Or is it really, is it really a two way street? Do we have to really be in, in obviously a safe setting with someone? Cause if we don't feel safe, doesn't matter how emotionally regulated we are, we're going to get dysregulated at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, uh, there's a book called adult children of emotionally immature parents, mm, which is like this topic. Yeah. To a T yeah. it's, 
it's really good and I highly recommend it for anyone in that situation um, because not only does it talk about dealing with emotionally immature parents and caregivers, the people who raised you, but kind of people out in the world too, when you encounter this, because there are people or we, you know, many of us have caregivers who just cannot go there, who cannot meet those needs for us. Yeah. Uh, and it's by Laura C. Gibson. And so a lot of what she recommends is, is finding ways to get those needs met elsewhere and shifting your expectations and not engaging when you can see it going. So this is also part of like becoming aware of what the pattern is and not engaging in it, you know, being able to like, I see where this is going and I'm going to be like, okay, mom, I hear you, but I'm not going to go there. And so that way you can keep a relationship. You can still show up for birthdays. You can do whatever you need, but recognize that like they may never be in a, an emotional place where they can give you what you need. Likely they won't if they haven't at this point and they're not willing to do the work. So you have to figure out what those needs are, find them elsewhere. And that's, I think the really important piece is like feeling resourced enough to like be able to be in that space. Um, and sometimes you need more space. You need, you do need firmer boundaries, you know, yeah. but that's going to be a little bit individual for all of us. It's a wonderful explanation. I feel like, you know, oftentimes when we have those unmet needs, we look for other people to soothe us. Right. And so mm-hmm. if, if I, you know, didn't have, um, healthy sort of a healthy emotional space to express, uh, with a caregiver, well, when I'm in adulthood, I will look for someone that is going to be, you know, everything emotionally for me. And I, I think that we, yeah. we need to do that work solo before putting it onto another person because it's ours to own. And that's a really hard thing to come to sort of grasp with for most of us, right? Um, you know, speaking from my own experience, the, the way I got into therapy, and I've said this many times on the show, but it was a breakup as well too, you know? <laughs> it is for a lot of people mm-hmm. or a death of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. And it was in that place of grieving the loss of the relationship for what I thought it was and the person, but also as a man, understand, as a young man, I was 23, looking at myself and saying like, okay, there are some behaviors that I am that I was doing over this, you know, one to two years or whatever that, I saw in my caregivers at a young age and these are unhealthy traits and I've now begun to yeah. embody them and I didn't even know I had them. It, it was like really my first real relationship, right? Right out of college, right? When I moved back from Patagonia, I was living in Chile, I moved back to Patagonia to the States and I was like, wait a minute, I didn't even know I had these things inside of me, but now I do and I feel like I need to talk someone, talk to someone about it to get some help <laughs> to sort this shit out because yeah. I don't want to keep getting myself into a situation like this or a relationship like this, right? Where it's really volatile, where we're not hearing each other, where, you know, I'm attracting someone that's not meeting my needs, vice versa, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I terms because I fought it for so long. For the majority of my 20s, I was like, I refuse to believe that this person who raised me will never change, right? Because they love me and they care about mm-hmm. me and I know that they really want a healthy relationship. But the fact is, you know, we always have a choice, right? Yeah. Regardless of your predispositions. And so not that I'm saying they're choosing to stay the same, but they're not choosing to put in the work to change because it takes a ton of work to become mm-hmm. more self-aware, right? To own our shit. And, it, and it's usually really uncomfortable and quite painful in the initial stages because like you said, we end up blaming ourselves, it right? Does. We end up and the more we're like, okay, I did this how many times in my life? I'm going to shit on myself. I'm going to make myself feel small. And that's really not the goal of the awareness, mm-hmm. right? You have to be able to hold a sense of acceptance within that motivation of change while recognizing, yes, I did undesirable things. I said undesirable things, but I want to change those things. And within that changing, I'm sort of reinventing my character, reinventing my integrity, and then I can feel proud of myself, right? It's one of the biggest issues that 
people face when they come talk to me is that they don't feel proud of themselves. They, they, they feel like they have no direction. They feel like they have no purpose, no meaning. And I'm like, okay, so what are the things you're doing? So we'll listen to them. So, okay, what are the things you're doing that you're not proud of? Okay, so we need to change those things because it's going to be hard for you to be proud of yourself if you're doing things you're not proud of. Because if you're doing things you're not proud of, you're creating a self that you're not proud of. And that's a really unfortunate thing if you keep doing that, right? You're kind of th- throwing your life force away. Yeah, and I think what in that, I, we talk a lot about that too. And I think one thing that's helpful to remember and hopefully to help them reframe too is like we do those behaviors like those behaviors are meeting needs for us they're doing something for us or we wouldn't be doing them and so what we want to do is like we do something we don't like and then we like don't want to look at it because it feels bad and it makes us feel guilty or ashamed but it's like we do kind of have to take a look at it and be like well what is it doing for you though because it's doing something or else you wouldn't be doing it and when we can start to figure out well what need is that meaning for me can I do something else instead that might actually make me like feel in alignment with who I want to be and and Mm -hmm. feel better but that's why it's so hard to look at those things when they feel really Absolutely. icky um but like yeah that's part of the the pain in all of this so do you feel like you're personally at a point now where you can sort of stop those behaviors before they happen or do you still engage in those things and you catch yourself and you're like okay slipped up and i can forgive myself and move on it depends on how close it is to like something yeah. that's raw <laughs> There's a lot of things that I've gotten a lot better with, um, so much better with. Uh, and even like my mom and I are really close and, but we had a conversation this week where I felt like, oh, I feel like I want to, and I like caught myself and was able to just be like, I'm just going to listen. Uh, so I've gotten a lot better, but yeah, I mean, it just depends on, on how close it is to where there is still pain. I think I asked that question because I think a lot of people assume that people that teach this stuff that they're just golden. Right. And I, I want to mm-hmm. tell everyone that that's really not the case. Like, you know, you, every mm-hmm. therapist is working on things, every coach, every, t- and if they're not, you probably should go see someone else because, you know, people, I think one yeah. of the disservices is when, uh, you know, as, as a provider or, or, or a teacher of some sort, we kind of have this shroud of like, Hey, I got, I got all the answers, right? Here they are. And I think the, the beauty of learning is it happens collectively, Right. And I think that's one of the cool things that you do with, with your workshops is that, you know, the most powerful moments I've had in one on one work, absolutely, but is more so when there's a group of people talking about a relatable experience that you had no idea that other people have to experience this. And it makes you feel yeah. less alone. It makes you feel less isolated in your experience yeah. or in your behavior and your action or the words you chose. Right. And within that collectivity, we can kind of step in to healing, step into acceptance, but also step into having the motivation to change collectively, right? And I think that's one of like the beautiful things of AA or, you know, um, well, Al-Anon or, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, because really it's like, it's, you're getting together with a group of people who have, who have suffered some of the same things and you can see Mm -hmm. people that are, you know, down the line of healing or more close to where you are and see like, okay, I have sort of a path forward to change my behavior, to change my life. Versus, oh my God, I have to do this all on my own. I don't have any outsourced support, right? I don't have any sort of belief, right? Spiritual practice. This leads me to this question. Are you a spiritual human being? And do you think that that's, mm-hmm. do you think that that's uh, necessary for the, the practice of awareness and emotional regulation throughout the lifespan of hum- humanism, right? Or being a human. I know I'm like, I'm getting esoteric here, but I'm just, I'm poking because I'm really curious yeah. about about this relationship? Well, I am definitely, 
I'm definitely spiritual. Their spirituality is is a part of my life. Um, I think sometimes I struggle with like other people should do this too. Even someone recently asked me, they're like, do you feel like people need to get into nature to heal? And I'm like, I mean, I I know it's been incredibly healing for me and it's a huge, I I still have a hard time being like, I know what everybody else needs. Cause I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like you can, you can come a long way maybe without having a spiritual practice, but I do know that I have one and it has been incredibly helpful for me to know that like, it helps me feel more connected to everyone else and everything to know that we are all connected in some way. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I struggle with like, you it's need that to heal, answer. but I do know it's been beneficial. Yeah, no, for me. It's, it's yeah. a really, it's a really well thought out answer. Um, and just, just goes to the, goes to show that you obviously are, are really deeply considering what you're saying to people and how it's coming off to them. Cause everyone's going to interpret right this episode differently. Um, and, and I try to be as aware as of my own words because, um, you know, for 10 years there, I was agnostic atheist. I grew up Catholic. Right. And so kind of very much put, yeah, very Same. much put dogma, guilt, religion aside. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, through, through a, a sort of a, a life coach that I had when I was 23 sort of re- came back to grips with like, uh, or excuse me, 30, not 23. I'm thinking of my first therapy. This is like, this is not too long ago. Came back to grips with like my necessity, my need for believing in something greater than myself, whether it's interconnectedness through energy or through love or God or what have you, right? I had Dr. Lisa Miller on the show um, a couple episodes ago, and she is the the head of the Science and Spirituality Institute at Columbia University. And she basically studies like scientifically how spiritual practices affect a human being and affect their, their happiness and how they relate to others, right? And I can say that when mm-hmm. I... Um, said, like, well, I don't believe in anything. I just believe in the tangibility of what's real. It, it, it didn't make me any less altruistic. Like I want to still help people. I wanted to give back, but it did make me feel more alone. And it was interesting because mm-hmm. I feel like there's this beauty in congregation and not necessarily that has to have like a, a religious connotation behind it, but just getting together and celebrating with your fellow human being, whether that's talking openly about struggles or dancing around music or whatever. But I do feel like to me, that is a spiritual practice. And when people say, well, I'm not spiritual, I'm like, well, what do you feel like when you go to a music show and dance around a bunch of other people and you just feel like this embodiment of love and who you're with and you look in their eyes? I'm like, that is spirit in a sense, in my mind, right? Because there's energy that's connecting you and these fellow humans there and you don't have to be on a single drug, but you're feeling euphoric, right? You're feeling incredible. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's the same thing mm-hmm. with a, a collection of people at a, um, at a at a funeral, for instance, like that, there is a spiritual practice going on there, right? There's people congregating to celebrate life, to uh, respect death, right? Um, and I think these things that we often overlook as forms of spiritual practice, because we think of spirituality in the terms of why well, I need to kneel in a building and speak upwardly, yeah. right? Yeah, and well, and I'm smiling too because I was just thinking about how like. One of the shifts for me a while ago was actually like a Radiolab episode mm-hmm. on color. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if you've heard that one, but it like changed how I think mm-hmm. about a lot of things, which is funny. Um, but it even just talks about like <laughs> what invertebrates in the ocean, like the spectrum of color that they're able to see that we are not, you know, and the infrared and the whatever that they can see and that we cannot. And it just kind of, it, it just really reinforced like that there's so much that we still don't understand. So to be able to say like, we know and science says this, it's like, we've been, you know, we have now seen so many things change as we gather new data and new information uh, that like, I mean, even just from that very pragmatic way of looking at it, that it's like, 
we don't know everything and there's definitely things that connect us. Um, and also it, it being, it providing so much comfort to be able to let go too, to be like, I don't have to control this, like something else, something else is going to happen. Something else is supposed to happen and it's out of my control. And then having that happen a number, number of times in my life too, just really reinforces that. Like I don't have it all. Somebody or somebody or something else is holding this. And, and that's actually really comforting. Absolutely, Isn't that a sort of result of the more aware you get, the more you realize you don't understand? Because I feel like at least where you yeah. are, the more uh, sort of ignorant bias I've had. And I've been like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I'm talking about, you know? Um, and now like it just, you, you kind of get in this, um, this cascade of like questioning, you know, questioning this, the, the things I've been raised to believe and not that there aren't some hard truths that I have, but those truths are usually dependent on the collectivity of engaging with other people. They're not just formulated by my own sort of silo or faction or group of people that I love to hang out with. I'm like asking, listening to everybody. And I'm like, okay, what are, what are these points yeah. that these people have to make? Because I might have something wrong. Right. And the hardest time to invoke that sort of thing is in a relationship. I feel like when you feel so right and you're trying to prove your point and it's not getting heard when I usually tell people like, well, let's flip this a little bit. Like, are you on the same team or are you not on the same team? Because if you're on the same team, mm-hmm. it, it's way easier to be more aware because you really want to understand the person because the goal of that is to progress, not necessarily to win. Right. And that usually changes our mm-hmm. outlook on when we argue with people. Cause most of the time when I, if I'm, if I'm being aware, I'm not there to prove a point. I'm actually there to understand, but also to hopefully be heard versus like, Hey, I'm right. You have to accept what I'm saying. And it's so counterintuitive too, but when you are more curious and open to someone else's perspective, they will naturally, usually like 99% of the time become more naturally curious yeah. about yours. It's like you have to be the, you know, put on the a big girl pants and start and be like, okay, but, okay, but why do you feel that way? Or, you know, tell me more about that. What's going on for you? Even though your insides are like, oh, no, I don't want to, I want to, I want to defend, you know, I want to say what's, what's going on with me. But it's so funny how when we hold that space for other people, they're just so much more likely than to hold that space I for us. I absolutely agree. It invites that because I know when, when I really try my hardest to just be more, emotionally regulated in a, in a space I'm, I'm triggered and hold more space for the person and be like, okay, like, can you explain that to me? I want to understand what you're saying. It really does invite more of that openness where like it calms them down too. And we're able to sort of meet a more, um, I would say like calm area of communication versus, you know, we're, you know, raising each other's levels, right? Digging exactly. our heels in. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I know. That's why like I noticed for myself, just, I mean, and this is a thing that's like nuanced to just still getting more and more clear for me is like noticing when I get tense and like where that even like on Instagram and people make comments on my posts and noticing where I'm like, I want to defend that and being like, okay, what is that, Jenny? <laughs> like, what is that? You're not always right. Um, is, is still something that I like I'm wrestling with and trying to hold and be like, what is underneath that? I think that? the solution to that, Jenny, Why is just hire someone to care? respond to your comments. I mean. i feel like that's what a lot of people do they're just like okay i don't need it i don't want to deal with this anymore um 
It is activate. It can be 100%, really activated. But I also realize I invite it because mm-hmm. I want people to engage in discussion and disagree with me. Um, my mm-hmm. only one stipulation is just be respectful and there's no like defamation of character. But I, I love when people disagree and they come in, they come in and they're just like, hey, this is, I think you're wrong. This is what's up. Um, and I, I love engaging in those discussions. But there's obviously people that come in, they're just like, you know, trying to hurt someone's feelings too, which, which does happen. Which I actually feel like that's, Mm-hmm. easier yeah. for me when they're just like come right. out swinging because you're like okay right all right well i'm gonna not absolutely <laughs> yeah not engage there well jenny where can folks find you where can they work with you if they're interested in working with you and um yeah tell us where to tell us where to find you on social media and what else you got going out there in the uh the interwebs yeah, uh, at the EQ School on Instagram is where I spend most of my time and energy. Um, the EQSchool.co is my website where you can go to learn more about my workshops uh, and my self-paced courses. And I'm starting to try to get on TikTok. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I you feel old. <laughs> I feel very old in that space. So I got on try. TikTok. Also at I the I got EQ on TikTok School. about a year ago uh-huh. and I just deleted it about a month ago, um, <laughs> mostly because of their privacy issues. Uh, I just, they, they just get all this oh, access to your phone. Yeah. And I gotta be honest, like, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And because there's a huge user base there and it, it'll promote the Instagram, promote the content and I be able to reach more people. But it just got a little too overwhelming for me. I was like, I just want one avenue and mm-hmm. I'm just going to use Instagram. I don't have a Twitter anymore. I deleted that when I stopped being an athlete and, uh, not to discourage you because like, you should obviously get it if you want to. But, um, I just feel so much better with just Instagram. Like Instagram's enough. It's it's enough of my time and energy, so I don't have to make two videos or, or you know all this other stuff. And well, and you do this right. like the whole right. podcast. Yeah. And this is where I'm passionate. I mean, I love um, I love having conversations with people like you. Um, I love working with clients one on one. Like social media, like I'm on it because it gets you out there and it connects you to people. Oh man, but it's uh, I really just want a human again. You know, I miss the times when we didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> iPhones and screens and when you and I were you know little and it was just like hey I'm gonna go outside and grab a stick and imagine my world to be in this completely different place and that (laughs) is my entertainment I'm not gonna stare at YouTube videos right um yeah. And I'm going to call and if they don't pick up, then well, shit, oh well, I'm not going to hang out on you, you, right? I'm not going to, I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to get angry that they saw my text message and it says red. And then I'm going to like think about how many different ways they don't like me. Yeah. Go right. to rabbit exactly. hole. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, and to everyone out there, I'm totally not against social media, but I do think it's obviously caused some <laughs> problems. So. Yeah. And for me, it's just because writing is like, I think I, I didn't, I didn't say in my little um, intro that I have a master's in literature. So writing has been a big piece of my um, journey as well. And so that's why like when they started making everything about reels, I was like, no, (laughs) no, I like to write. So I'm continuing. As someone who's working on my first book right now, and it'll be a short one, I'm sure you have plenty of that coming down the pipeline. And so I, I look forward to reading more of your writing. There are things, there are things coming. Yep. Well, Jenny, thank yeah. you so much for joining me today. I really want to have you back on because well, my dogs are barking in the middle of this and we had to reschedule today because I had some internet <laughs> stuff. But uh, I really enjoy talking to you. It's it's super calming. I feel calmer now. Um, and uh, I, just, I would love <laughs> to have you back on and, and have another heart to heart because it's, it's great getting to know you. Yeah, I would love that. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. And wealth and fame so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart, and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart and in your heart.